Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host... Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming up in the second half of today's show, National Geographic explorer, author, and travel writer Carrie Miller. Her latest book, published by National Geographic, is packed full of amazing underwater photography and stories about our ocean and its inhabitants. The book is called 100 Dives of a Lifetime, the World's Ultimate Underwater Destinations. And talking of explorations, my first guest had left her family home feeling like a misfit, but was drawn back to small-town Idaho following her grandfather's death. And when she arrived at her grandparents' home, she began an unexpected exploration of her own. My guest is Deborah Gwartney. She was born in Salmon, Idaho, a fifth-generation Idahoan, and uh, she's the winner of the 2018 River Teeth Nonfiction Prize. She's the author of Live Through This, a mother's memoir of runaway daughters and reclaimed love. We talked about that on our show some years ago. And she's the co-editor of Home Ground, a guide to the American landscape. Her writing appears in Salon, Real Simple, and the New York Times Modern Love column. And she teaches in Pacific University's Master of Fine Arts writing program. Her new book is part history, part memoir. It's called I'm a Stranger Here Myself. It weaves frontier history into a personal exploration of women, womanhood, place, and belonging. Deborah Gwartney, welcome. Thank you so much, and thanks for that beautiful intro. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome, and I should say welcome back because uh, it's been a minute. It's been about nine, yes. nine or ten years since we last talked oh, about I your know. last book. Um, and this book is really quite different, but it's it's a, it's an exploration of an of another kind. Yes. And so um, well, let's just dive right into this. Growing up, you describe your life as lonely, the, you, the black sheep of the family, a girl who didn't necessarily, f- or she didn't feel that she fit in, and yet who longed to belong. So um, was it inevitable at some point that you were going to go on this journey and, and write about it? Well, I suppose so, since, I'm, uh, since I am a writer, and that's how I work things out. You know, I think other people work things out through music or dance or art, and, and my way of, of working things out is to sit down and write about it. And, you know, a lot of that doesn't get published, but I started thinking that maybe this is a book that other people could really resonate with, because I, I think we all long to have a place where we're cherished and where we belong and where we can step in fully and feel embraced. And um, I realized that I probably wasn't alone in that desire, and so I started exploring it. It's a big issue these days. I mean, Brene Brown wrote a whole book about belonging and people's sense of not belonging and longing to belong. Yes. Um, so it's a very big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so complicating this search for yourself, you, you had a very deep attachment to the landscape of home, um, to the, the mountains, the rivers, the valleys. Mm-hmm. You write that places, places that I... I know about as well as the lines on my face. Um, but, but you struggled with the culture there. Yes. So can we look at um, 
your mom and dad and how you grew up. And I know your grandmother was a huge influence uh, in introducing you to literature and myth and legend. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for that. Um, yes, I part of the book I, I wanted to explore, too, is uh, my parents were very young when I was born. They were 16 and 17. My dad was a 16-year-old just out of uh, his sophomore year in high school. And, um, you know, they they were extremely promising, bright young people. Hello, Wonderful. Deb- Deborah, uh, we yes. cu- we cut out there. Just so, oh. just we heard they were extremely bright young people. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and they and and their families wanted them to go on to brilliant lives, and and in fact they did do that. Um, but you know, it's it's a uh, it, it shapes you in a certain way to have teenage parents. My grandparents were hugely influential, um, but the you know I I wanted to explore that part of myself too, the the self that was. You know, growing up with my parents, my dad was, you know, we, there are pictures of my sister and me at his high school graduation. So, um, you know, we he was figuring out who he was, even as he was raising children. So it just puts a different slant on, on parenthood. And I and I think, you know, that, I, I, that my parents were fine people, but I felt completely secure and taken care of in my grandmother's houses and my great-grandparents. So... I just would wander from grandmother to grandmother, and I think that was, it just gave me a, a, a strength that I've drawn on my whole life to have those multi-generational women taking care of me. Right, right. So what do you think, I, I mean, you, you were very left-leaning yourself, you say. Your mm-hmm. father was very conservative. Right. Um, what made you that way, do you think? Because, <laughs> no, no, you know, I w- <laughs> often when we're kids, we, we believe what our parents believe until Absolutely. until a certain point. Yeah, right? yes, that's right. Um, you know, I I, um, I don't know if I have a an exact answer to that, except that, again, my grandmother, my, my paternal grandmother was always giving me books from the time I was very young and challenging books, not easy books. And, and uh, they made they opened up my world. She was very much interested in introducing me to poetry. So I knew a lot about Tennyson and Coleridge before I was, you know, eight. So um, she she really opened my life up and thought, so I would wonder about these other worlds and these other ways of being and thinking. And um, I did really love Salmon, Idaho so much. I loved Idaho in general. We moved to Boise when my parents finished college. Um, but I think what happened is that I didn't join in on the shooting. I didn't go hunting. I didn't go um, on the river to raft. And so I didn't get attached to those things like other people did in that area. Um, my mind was more interested in reading, you know, uh, Shirley Jackson and right. Flannery O'Connor. And um, and so uh, I think I just, my my sensibility was shaped in a different way uh, than than other people in my family. See, that's why they didn't give women books in the old days. I think so. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, so you, your mother, I read, was the only surviving child of, of your grandmother. So yes. um, was she very protective about you because of that? I mean, that must have shaped her uh, somewhat, right? Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I'm talking about a lot of themes. I think the book holds a lot of themes. I hope it all works together. But um, another theme for me is is how women back then, especially in the in the tough western frontier, were expected to handle grief. And the way my 
grandmother who lost four children was told to handle her grief was just to be quiet about it and never mm-hmm. speak of it. And we were all told as children to never, ever speak of it. And and I, I have a lot of regret about that. I adored my grandmother, and I so wish I had just sat down with her. I mean, she she didn't die till I was in my 50s, so I wish I had sat down with her and said, let's talk about those three sons and a daughter who, who died. And, um, and And I think that would have helped her a lot. So it was a very confusing message to me as a child, not to speak of it, but to see the, you know, the, how it, the manifestation of her grief all the time. Right. She was extremely protective of me. Yeah. She, she just built a little cage around me and didn't want anything to touch me in particular and also my siblings. Um, my mom, not so much. I mean, I think my mom was, again, so young. She was exploring herself. Um, so she wasn't protective like my grandmother was, but... Boy, I picked up on that protectiveness, and I thought, what is this all about? And I, I really wanted to think about it in the book. Mm. So let's talk about um, somebody that you initially thought of as odious. You, you'd written her off as your ideal nemesis, and that is uh, the true-life character Narcissa Whitman. Yes. And you came across, you'd seen this book before, but when you went back after your grandfather's death to your grandmother's home, you picked it up off the shelf mm-hmm. and look at it and, um, you know, there's history down in black and white, never to be altered, you write. Mm-hmm. And you begin questioning if you haven't done the same to your own life, just put it down there in black and white, never to be altered. So how did that reading that book and about this particular woman spark the journey into researching her and running it parallel through your book? Yes, thanks for that question, too. I I think what happened is that when I went back from my grandfather's funeral and really felt like an outsider, you know, I I was an adult, I had my children were grown, and I thought, why am I ever going to be able to come back to this place and just feel that childhood welcome that I just adored so much? And I I was just kind of banging around, um, you know, he was gone, and my 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 father and I were kind of clashing about politics. And so I found this book, and I thought, you know, I, I bet if I read this book and I just got really angry at her, then I'd be justified in my feelings about um, not fitting in. And so that's where I started. I just wanted to be mad at her because I think she did make a lot of mistakes when she came west. Um, I, I think she, she was misguided. She was a religious zealot, and... You know, things that just didn't fit with my epistemology. and But what happened is the more I researched her, the more human she became, of course, and, um, and the more complicated. And I started seeing that she, too, was, was yet another woman who was, you know, shaped and kind of used by history to get what, what people wanted out of, you know, the progress of the West and the manifest destiny and... She was a good leverage for um, for uh, because she was killed by Native people. Uh, immediately, those Native people were excoriated. They were killed themselves, and their lands were taken away. And you know, I just I, I started to understand how com- complicated she was, and I ended up having some respect for her. So um, you know, I think she did. Uh, she was misguided. Right. I'd like to learn just a little bit more about her journey, but we need to take a quick break. So sure, sure. hold that thought. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. My guest is Deborah Gwartney, and her book is called I Am a Stranger Here Myself. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals a pause a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws Foster Care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lang, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time, Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is Deborah Gortney. Her new book is I Am a Stranger Here Myself. It's uh, part memoir, part history. It weaves frontier history into Deborah's personal exploration of womanhood, place, and belonging. And I said before the break, I'd like to know, share just a little bit more about Narcissa Whitman because she is a fascinating character, like her or not, agree with her or not. She was the first Caucasian woman to cross the Rocky Mountains, and um, she appears throughout the book. You weave in her story, you weave in your story. Um, Tell us a little bit more about her. You said she's a missionary. Um, did you, at some point, you at some point came to see her as a real person, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I think um, an interesting uh, aspect of her life is that her own mother was determined that Narcissa was going to be a missionary from birth on, I'm sure. She just 
she was given really no other choice. And, and in the you know early 1800s, what, what could she do but go along with that? And she did feel that fervor in her own body. And, and her mother took her to some revivals when she was 11, 12 years old. And she, she was just on fire for God. She really was. And she applied and applied to be a missionary, but they kept turning her down because they wanted her to be married. So she... Um, she heard about a man, and he heard about her, and they got together at Narcissa's parents' house, talked in the parlor for two hours, and came out engaged. So that's the, wow. <laughs> that was the whole of their relationship right there. And so they got married and, um, and left that very day for the West. And so she was basically with a stranger for five months on the road. Um, and there was no road. You know, they were kind of they were making it for the first time. Yeah, they, they were creating They were the it. first couple to do this. And so, um, and they were with another missionary couple, the Spaldings, Eliza and Henry Spalding. And, and so how far did they get before they were massacred? Oh, they got, they got all the way, and they lived in near Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, that's right. Um, they lived there for 11 years in their mission, and um, they, they did their best to convert the Cayuse tribe but in 11 years, not one single Cayuse person converted to their religion. Mm-hmm. So it was a bust, and um, and they just never got along well, and finally a band of Cayuse came in and, and killed 14 people, including Narcissa. They they really tortured her. They She was loathed by the people she lived around. And, um, and then they took the 50 or so women and children hostage for a month. Uh, it was a Extremely unfortunate incident for everyone. Very just, just awful. Mm. Um, but uh, it was the so again another first. It was really the first killing of white people um, in the Pacific Northwest. The first murder trial. So um, you know it changed everything about the West. I think it just turned us in a different direction, and it allowed again. I said this earlier. It allowed for just a wipeout of Native people and taking of their land. And so one of the ways that you really felt connected to her, you, you mentioned earlier that you didn't join the family. You, you never hunted. You never held a gun. You never shot a gun um, in Idaho. Um, all stuff that your family did, your family um, actually were wolf hunters back then um, before that was stopped. Um, and so, so you had a very different way of looking at things. And then you had you, for some reason, one day decided to go on a rafting trip with, trip with them, and almost drowned. And you felt connected to Narcissa, on some level, because she had a child who drowned when she was just two years old. Yeah. So tell us about that incident and how you felt that connection when you were researching Narcissa. Yes, it was a really interesting connection that came up for me because I was furious at her. Be- in part because she, um, and, you know, who am I to be furious about this woman? But, <laughs> but, I, but I, you know, you, you read about someone and then you just feel these feelings inside. Right. But I, 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 I just couldn't believe that her little two-year-old came in and said, you know, Mama, I'm going to the river. And it, because it was the Sabbath, um, they wouldn't respond to her. Her mother and father were reading their Bibles, and, and they wanted to teach her not to speak to them on the Sabbath. And so she went down to the river herself, and she drowned. Um, and um, so I really looked at that anger, and again, 
what, what gives me the right to be angry at someone whose life was so different than mine? And I didn't, I don't really, how could I understand where she was at in her own uh, journey toward, you know, herself? And so what I realized is that when I went on that raft trip, I left two little daughters behind with my grandmother. They were young. They were two years old and six months old. And, and later I thought, wait a minute, maybe the person I need to be looking at is myself. What was I doing jumping on a raft when I had these two little kids to take care of because we did get in a bad accident and, um, and I came very close to drowning. And I, you know, it's not that I don't want to take risks, but I really wanted to look at how easy it is to judge someone else without stopping and thinking, haven't I made very similar decisions? So I, I just, I wanted to own up to how I can hide from my own foibles by judging others. And I would like to get over that as a person. Right. Do you think, um, do you think you've got there? I mean, did writing this help? Oh my goodness. It helped so much because I did have to start understanding that she was a pawn and, um, and extremely lonely. Her loneliness just ebbs out from the letters she wrote home. And I, and that's a huge connection for you oh. if you grew up, you know, you grew up very lonely as a kid, right? That's right. It was a huge connection. I realized she was, her hard, hard exterior was, um, you know, basically because she didn't know how else to be. I mean, she was, she didn't know who to turn to and say, I am so alone and lonely and I want to go home. Right. And she couldn't go home. She couldn't. It was, it was, um, she'd made her decision once she headed west. Um, so I really felt for her in that regard, and it made me think about how I, you know, Narcissa came to be a talker and not a listener. She was not willing to listen to anybody else's point of view. She only had her own, and I think it got her in a lot of trouble. And the only way I can respond to that is to say to myself, you need to be a better listener, Deborah, and not such a talker. So I have tried to do that in this very polarized time in our country to just try to listen more and not judge so quickly. Right, right. Explain a little more, if you would, how she was used as a pawn. Well, she, um, you know, she came first, as we've been talking about, and then she really opened the way because she and, and Eliza Spalding got a wagon over the Rocky Mountains all these other women in the Midwest and, and back east said, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Mm. And that opened up the Oregon Trail. Uh, you know, it's not that cut and dried, but they had a huge influence on opening the Oregon Trail to women. And so um, once uh, those families started coming, you know, 300,000 people came to the Pacific Northwest to settle in a matter of just a few years. And, and when so when... So they wanted this land that was out here that belonged really to Native people. So when Narcissa was killed, um, instantly laws were passed to take Native land away, you know, as as retribution. And a war was declared on the Cayuse, um, and and many, many of them were killed. Um, So, and then five chiefs were hung in Oregon City. So I think she was used as a pawn in that, you know, she, oh, look, this, beautiful white woman is dead, her hair is spread all over the place, and her body was torn up, and they really used that to propel fear, and, and this fear-mongering was a big deal back then. Let's, let's make the settlers very afraid. 
so we can um, justify killing these native people. Right. That's right. my non historian hmm. you know, I'm not a scholar or a historian, but that's what I got out of reading for five years about this situation. Yeah. I, and I I just want to say, we were talking in the break, and you said it took you about seven years to, to write this book, because and much of that was researching the history of Narcissa Whitman and, and that journey and her life. So um, let's look a little bit about your life because you do, this is part memoir, part history. You're making connections here. You're both, you know, seeking new ground, looking for a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, going full circle after you'd been through this journey, do you feel that you found peace you were looking for? The, the area that you really struggled with was where you were born, salmon, right? Mm-hmm. And do, do you feel you have reconciliation around that? Gosh, that's that's um, such a good question, and I I think I do because I end the book going back to spread my grandfather's ashes at at the hunting camp where I was never allowed as a child, um, but as a as an adult um, I got to go there this one time to spread his ashes, and when I got there I realized you know um, this is this is the shape of my life and I'm going to accept it and I'm I'm not going to just lament what I didn't have because I, I got something else and, and I, I need to embrace that and celebrate it. And I like my life. I like my life as a liberal woman and living in Oregon and that's who I am. And um, I think there was a, a definitely a note of self-acceptance. However, you know, I don't think that memoirs work when they're tied up with a neat bow because life right. isn't ever tied up with a neat <laughs> right. bow. And so I didn't want to suggest that I had, you know, that you know, double rainbows formed over my head or something. It, um, it w- it's, it's an ongoing struggle. But I know what I can say to myself now is no one can tell me that I do not belong in Salmon, Idaho. Only I can decide that. And I think if, if I came to that, that's a good ending for me. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about memoir is that as you're writing it, you're writing it as you feel now about yes. that. Yes. So that may change in another 10 years. Oh, absolutely, yes. So um, tell me a couple of the biggest things you learned about yourself on this journey, Deborah, because you can't go through an exploration like this and not come away with, um, you know, some big, we've already shared a big one, but I mean, mm-hmm. but what, how else in little ways maybe do you see things differently or have you changed? Yes, I think back to the, you know, to the idea of grief, I realized that I don't want to be yet another woman who, is told by a you know a patriarchal society that we live in that it's not okay to express grief and and I I want to support other women in finding ways especially because I'm a, a writer and a teacher I want to find ways to encourage women to write about grief I think it's so important that we start telling those stories instead of burying those stories inside of us I, and, and echo that I had an aunt who her eldest daughter died when her daughter was thirty. I, we were, I was very close to my aunt. Never once in my life did I hear her talk about that situation. Isn't that something? Yeah. Different generation, whole different generation. Yeah. It was a different generation, but I still think that that message is there. It's more subtle, perhaps. But, um, but I, I just think, boy, it's time for women to tell our stories and, and warts and all. And um, so I'm, I think I learned that about myself to stand up more. I also think what I learned about myself is that um, it kind of served me to to um, feel sorry for myself all those years as a kid who wasn't getting what my brother was getting or what you know what my cousins were doing and 
I would just I would mope around and think, oh, nobody ever um, tries to take me out on the river or takes me hunting, you know. But uh, the truth is, I didn't want those things. Right. So um, I I I I realized that as a young person, I really played the double edge there, and and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to say, well, that just wasn't my path, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you touched on earlier, and that's looking for common ground. Mm-hmm. And you ask, you know, is there is there any common ground? We are so polarized, not just in this country, but in the world right now. Yes. Is there a way for us to stand together and remember what we love and our common experiences? Because we actually do have more common experiences than we'll admit. Um, what do you have to say about that? What are your thoughts around that? Well, first of all, I totally agree with you. If we, we need to start looking for our commonalities and, and, and what we all love together instead of what tears us apart because we just we sure are going the tear apart route way too much. Um, and again, you know, I just I, what I learned from Narcissa is that if she could have just opened herself up to these people and they could have actually talked to each other, I think that this would have been a much different story, but she just couldn't do that. And, and I want to learn from that myself with my, with my family and when I talk to them about politics to not just close down so quickly as I tend to. Um, but I also think that, uh, that we, this is such a time of, of great opportunity and change hurts. And, and um, when I read, you know, for these years and years of reading about the expansion of the West and Manifest Destiny and and how we settled the Pacific Northwest, I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, we, we keep repeating ourselves. We just keep repeating and repeating these, these uh, ways of being, and, and we forget to learn from our earlier generations. And so I, I want to remember to learn from my grandmothers and my great-grandmothers and the women who came before them and, and to not think so much about our generation as in a vacuum. Yeah, it's really funny because um, I had very strong grandparents uh, and very strong women running throughout my family. Mm. And the older I've got, the more I've gone back to adopting their ways. Yes, yes. Um, because they work. They do. <laughs> Old wives' tales are, are, are there for a reason. Yeah. So um, Publishers Weekly calls the uh, book, I Am a Stranger Here Myself, bitingly Honest. It's been described by the Oregonian as a memoir, as a white knuckle read told in everyday clean prose. And Kirkus Reviews gave it a starred review, call it an achingly beautiful chronicle of unfathomable sorrow, flickering hope, and quiet redemption. Um, fair to say? Um, yes, I think some of those were uh, in regard to my earlier book, but I. The Kirkus Review uh, was was the first book, but I will take oh, it again. Okay. It's a beautiful line. I just love it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, it's carried through to this book. Um, I, yes. I am a stranger here myself. I know that you're um, you're appearing in Portland tonight. You're coming up to Seattle the next few days. So. Yes, I'm going to be reading at Elliott Bay on Friday the 22nd. Really looking forward to it. I love Elliott Bay Bookstore. I love Seattle, by the way. Okay. Do you know where? What time? What day? Seven, seven o'clock on Friday. Okay. Seven p.m. Okay. Um, and I would just it would be so great to hear some see some of your listeners there. Yeah. So a final quick thought you'd like to leave everyone with today, Deborah. 
Well, I think I'm just going to repeat something, and that is to honor our earlier generations and remember that they have a lot to teach us, and um, and I'm so glad I went back and looked. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. I so appreciate your wonderful questions. Thank you. <laughs> well, we hope it's not another 10 years before we talk, okay? Yeah, I'll be very old. <laughs> and the, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Deborah Gwartney. You can find out more about Deborah at her website, DebraGwartney.com, and the book, again, I Am a Stranger Here Myself. All right, please stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back. Coming up March 25th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Seattle author Elise Hooper joins us with a peek into the life of photographer Dorothea Lang, the woman who captured the real America. We'll also hear from international best-selling author Steve Barry, who always reveals little-known facts about history and thrillers. Tune in Monday at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on more than 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior, we cover the world of animals. This week, March 24th, it's our first Vet Sunday with Dr. Margot Roman, an integrative vet from New England. She's been treating Plechner syndrome for years, does chiropractic, acupuncture, homeopathy, herbs, and lectures worldwide on her groundbreaking therapies. Get to know Dr. Margot and hear all about her work on Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Let's see if I... I guess that... This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. And welcome back, everyone. This is Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, coming up next, I'm going to bring you a conversation I had 
uh, with somebody I quite envied, to be quite honest. <laughs> she's got a great job. Uh, she's been writing for National Geographic since 1998. She's a two-time Lowell Thomas Award winner and contributing editor at National Geographic Traveler magazine. Her works also appeared in Afar and Travel and Leisure, among others. And uh, she is, um, her husband is a dive master. And uh, that right now, as we talked, as I spoke with her last week, they're actually traveling the world for an upcoming guidebook. And um, it, it, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a while. But right now, uh, what we talked about last week was her new book that's come out from National Geographic, 100 Dives of a Lifetime, The World's Ultimate Underwater Destinations. And don't be put off if you're not a deep sea diver yourself, because trust me, um, I've been there and I won't go back. But, <laughs> but I so enjoyed looking at the photographs in this book. I think there were over 350 photographs. Uh, put together by uh, Brian Skerry, who's a photojournalist specializing in marine wildlife and underwater environments. And um, it's just as, you know, you expect from National Geographic, an awesome book full of stories and uh, full of uh, things and great facts that I never knew about. So I'm going to bring that conversation to you right now. Uh, Carrie Miller is who I talked with, and uh, here's the conversation. So, Carrie, we're going to talk about this fantastic book that you've put together here. But before we get into that, I know you've been a travel writer for a long time. Which came first for you, diving or writing for National Geographic? The writing came first, actually. Um, it's pretty much all I've wanted to do since I was about eight or nine years old. And actually, uh, I've been a longtime ocean lover and snorkeler, uh, the kind of person where, if you, you know, if you're out on a boat in Hawaii, I'm the first one into the water and the last one out. But the impetus to actually learn to dive came from a National Geographic assignment when uh, they wanted to send me down to South Australia to dive with great white sharks, which is something that's in the book. It's um, a chapter called Port Lincoln. It's the only place in the world where you can do an ocean floor cage dive with great white sharks if you're uh, scuba certified. So that was what uh, the driving force was to go ahead and get it done. And how did you feel going down as a new diver <laughs> to swim with the sharks there? Oh, the sharks are incredible. They're the most charismatic creatures on the planet. They're just, they're just magnificent, and it really is a privilege to see them. Again, you're in a controlled space, right, right. which is good. <laughs> um, so uh, so you know, you're definitely hyper aware of the fact that they, they are a large predatory animal, but, um, but wow, they are just magnificent. So mm. I, it, was, it, was a real, it was a real privilege. And so what prompted this year-long exploration around the world? You did this with, with your husband. He's a dive master. Um, but what prompted this? Did, is this a, a, something you came up with, or was this a National Geographic project from the get-go? Well, there's, so there's two separate projects. The 100 Dives of a Lifetime, the book that's out now, um, that was the first project. And so I spent, um, I spent a good year researching and writing that one. That idea came from uh, legendary photographer Brian Scarry, um, who is an underwater photographer and explorer. And he, um, he kind of came up with the idea that um, it would be a, we, we should do a project that gets more people um, interested in, in the marine environment, something that appeals to more recreational divers and not necessarily, you know, exploration focused. And I got brought into the project and, and happily took it up. Um, 
And it coincided with an idea that my husband and I had been developing about doing a book on the world's best dive travel destinations. So the dive travel destinations is separate because it's more of a, um, a focus on having a land and ocean-based experience and seeing how the two are interconnected. And also a lot of divers are traveling with non-diving travel companions. So that book will come out next year, but we're currently on the road for that. We got on the road the beginning of April. We've been traveling to a new place every week for a continuous year, and we get off the road mid-May. So we're living out of four bags at the moment, two of which are scuba diving bags. (laughs) It's been a great adventure. (laughs) And so you literally, I read for this book, The uh, 100 Dives, the one that is out now, um, 100 Dives of a Lifetime, you literally put all of your stuff in storage and just took off for a year. You were gone the whole year, right? That's the, that's the book that's coming up. That's the, oh. book, the project that we're doing now. The 100 Dives was where I canvassed um, all of National Geographic's top underwater photographers and explorers and writers, Got it. as well as divers around the world. And actually, that's, that gave us an inspiration for a lot of the places that we chose for our current book. So there's going to be some overlaps. But it's been great to actually go visit some more of the places that are in 100 Dives. I think uh, in April and May, we're going to get to go to seven or eight of the destinations in 100 Dives, which I'm really looking forward to. It sounds absolutely awesome. Um, I don't dive myself. I did get certified, but um, I found I got very claustrophobic and panicky. So it wasn't for me. But I so enjoyed looking through this book. Some beautiful photography in here. Um, There's over 350 images here. So how long did it take you to canvas all of this and put it all together? Oh, the the research was what took most of the time. Um, That took took many, many, many months. Um, But it was so amazing talking to... Um, talking to divers from around the world because they've got such a passion for it. Um, and a lot of people actually started out like you. When, when, and I started out like you. When I first started diving, it was not for me. I felt uncomfortable. I felt panicky. I felt nervous. And if you just kind of take it, and, and for some people, it will never be for them. But for some people, if you just take it slowly, um, you get over that feeling, you get accustomed to that feeling. It's kind of like learning to drive, where it can be really scary and, and intimidating straight away. Um, and other people, like my husband, just take to it immediately. So once you start diving, though, uh, all of the divers who are out there actively diving, you talk to them, and there's just this love for the underwater space. And I think one of the biggest surprises for me was how many different landscapes there are underwater as there are above water. Um, there's, there's mountains, there's deserts, there's tropical environments. Like, it's, it's just extraordinary, and it was very unexpected. There's this inc- completely different world down there and it's a real privilege to be able to see that and we tried to canvas a lot of that in the book and showcase a lot of these different different places around the world that you can go um, can go see and experience yeah i mean you've got everything there from huge sinkholes to shipwrecks and uh, an underwater artillery thing that you you went under there um, I, I tell you what amazed me, uh, because I took, uh, I studied oceanography and marine biology, but um, I still saw pictures in your book that I, a fish I'd never seen. It's such a vast exploratory world under there. You write that it covers 70% of the planet, yet 80% of it, the 80% of our oceans are still unexplored. And that, by definition, pretty much makes anybody who's diving, even if it's your very first dive, you're an explorer. You're seeing something that, that, um, that somebody might not have seen before, a, a particular species or an environment. And that is the addictive property of it. Like, it just is 
it's hard to describe that it really is this entirely different world down there, and it's one that we know so little about and we need to work so hard to preserve. Um, right now, there's only about 3.5% of the oceans are protected. Only 1.6 of that is, is really protected. And the ICUN states that in order to kind of have even remotely healthy environment, we need 30%. So we really need to get the space looked after and protected so that fish can thrive um, and, and the ocean gets back to a more healthy state. And I guess it's if you're not a diver, it's really easy to just kind of look out over the ocean surface and think that everything's ticking along okay. And, and what my husband and I have seen on this current project in our current year is that the weather is changing in every single place we've traveled to, every single place. Mm. So we need to do something about it. And hopefully, if we can get people inspired and interested in the marine environment, even if they're not diving, we can, we can get them interested in protecting it. Yeah, well, I just looking at this book, um, and you know, from an armchair, uh, it makes me want to do more. You you describe the ocean as the our oceans as the beating heart of our planet, and say, um, the more we see, the more we understand what we don't know. So that kind of um, goes along with being an explorer if you're diving, even for the first time there. Really easy to get jaded in this day and age um, about oh there's there's nothing left to see there's nothing left to explore it's all been done it's all being destroyed um, and you you can get into a negative mindset pretty quickly and and diving jars you out of that because uh, you know you really get this sense that you're you're in a privileged point of view and that the world is this precious and beautiful place worth protecting. Um, and that there's still so much more out there to see and do. I'm going to massacre this statistic because I don't have it right in front of me, but um, the renowned ocean explorer Bob Ballard, the man who discovered the Titanic, I believe he stated in a, in a talk recently that the current generation of middle schoolers is going to explore more of the planet than all previous generations combined. Wow. So there's so much out there to go and see and do, and the more we can get kids interested in science and scientific principles in oceans and getting out and, and, and seeing things and knowing that they can, they can have a hand in shaping the future, the better off we're all going to be. Right. You say that putting together a list of the world's 100 best dives was really challenging because the only real commonality among scuba divers is how diverse they are. Uh, you say that from macro photographers to ice enthusiasts, cave divers, reef lovers, where does your real interest lie? I love all of it, but I tend to lean towards the sharkier side of things. I love seeing sharks on a dive. I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate if I get to see one, and I think it, sharks are always indicative of a healthy marine environment. So the bigger fish, the big schools of fish, I love seeing if I can sneak in and, and how long I can be part of a school of fish before they figure out I'm not one of them and all dissipate. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I tend to get my, my diving kicks. Well, one of the photographs that struck me the most was a 20-foot manta ray. Oh, my gosh, it was such a beautiful photograph where he's floating above the divers and the divers looked so tiny underneath it. Um, it was just magical. But I'm wondering, um, I, I also saw uh, what they call a Napoleon wrasse or a humphead um, that you, you included in the book. And uh, that was... That looked like a little tiny fish that should be in an aquarium, but it was almost eight feet long. <laughs> massive. Those things are massive. 
bass. They're beautiful to see. Um, and then there's frogfish, which are just which are odd-looking creatures that have fins that are kind of like flat-footed things that almost look like feet that kind of walk along corals. Um, there, there's just a there, there's underwater. What I, I can't I can't quite remember the name of what we just saw. We were in. Um, uh, blanking on the place now. Um, I think it was. Uh, I think it was in Malapasco in the Philippines, and they, they have things that look like underwater insects, like like moths, um, mm. and they're fish. And and I've never even. I never even knew those things existed. And so, like every dive is a discovery. There's so many incredible things out there, and I still have an affinity for the colorful coral crunching parrotfish that you see on snorkel uh you know when you're out snorkeling i love those things i yeah. can hang around and watch those for ages they're just incredible cheeky chirpy little fish <laughs> yeah. yeah so um scuba diving is potentially a dangerous sport so for someone who's new to it where's a good spot for them to begin it's just like learning to drive a car where you, you kind of start out in this controlled environment and, and you, so you do your theory and then you do some basic practice in the pool and then a little bit more practice in the deeper end of the pool. Then you go out and you just want to make sure that you're taking it at your own pace. Um, you're, choosing, you're choosing certified shops. There's dive organizations out there. Obviously, Patty's the, the most well-known one. Um, dive certificated, dive certified shops means that um, that they're they're adhering to certain standards, um, and you're just like my advice for first time divers would be to look for places that have warmer water and good visibility because it means that you have to wear less gear so you don't get as much of that claustrophobic feeling that you f get sometimes when you first put on the equipment, um, and good visibility means that you can see all the way around, and so a lot of the dives in the beginning section of the book feature nice clear water some warmer water destinations although there are a few cold water destinations in there and then and places where you're going to get to see a lot but you might not be battling the elements quite as much as when you want to take diving you know kick it up a notch okay. but diving is actually a really safe sport you just have to take it slow and take it to your own level yeah use your common sense i have to let you go i have a million more questions for you but i have to let you go carrie so thank you so much for being with us Thank you so much. And if people want to follow along with what we're currently doing um, on Facebook and Instagram, we're the Dive Travelers, and I'm Carrie Miller Writer, and that's C A R R I E. And Hundred Dives is, uh, I think, out now in Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and pretty much every place you can buy books. So okay. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Carrie. And uh, as I said uh, before, we brought you that interview. Uh, the book, even if you never set foot in the ocean yourself it is absorbing she's a really good writer sometimes with these kind of books you you know the writing's a little stilted she is a really good storyteller and uh, so I really enjoyed this book there are over 350 images and um, it's it's described as the ultimate bucket list for ardent scuba divers and aspirational travelers alike and armchair viewers too uh, 100 Dives of a Lifetime, the world's ultimate underwater destinations. So we have a couple of minutes left here, and I thought what we'd do is just share a couple of ocean facts because, um, as I said, I, I was, you know, I took marine biology, I took oceanography, doesn't make me an expert by any means, but, uh, but I read a lot, I love National Geographic, and I was just so surprised by some of the stuff I saw in this book. Um, but I don't want to give away the whole book, so I pulled some other facts as well that kind of uh, coincide with it. Um, we mentioned in there that about 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. 
and yet the oceans largely remain a mystery for scientists. Uh, we actually know more about the moon's surface than the depths of the ocean. In fact, 12 people, uh, actually that's probably changed now because this was a few years old, this information. But um, let's just say that far more people have been on the moon uh, and stepped actually foot on the moon, um, but only th- Three so far have been down to the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest part of the ocean, which is roughly seven miles, seven miles deep. Can you imagine that? Have you seen those little bathyscopes that go down, Eric, the little um, underwater submarines? I, yeah, yeah, I have seen those. Yeah, it's really cool. Claustrophobic, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not only are you like really tightly enclosed in these little machines, but you're also seven miles under the water. (laughs) Which I'm sure they try not to think about (laughs) every second that they're down there. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, Another interesting fact was um, that... uh, I think, I can't remember the exact amount, but it was, there's so much, it was about 80% of what's under there still is not clearly identified. So we think we know this. We've got this book full of photographs here. You know, there are films like Blue Planet, which talk about stuff. And yet most of the, most of the um, activity under the water, we, we still haven't clearly identified. So there's still a great exploration going on there for anybody interested. And uh, do you remember uh, Ken Jennings? Yes, the Jeopardy winner and uh, author who's been on the show. Yeah, well, he wrote an article about the Earth's largest known waterfall, uh, which lies between Greenland and Iceland. It's underwater. The largest known waterfall is underwater. How do you have a waterfall underwater? Well, it's apparently caused by the when colder, denser water from the east of this divide meets the warmer, lighter water from the west of the divide, the cold water flows down and underneath the warm water. But just to give you uh, some idea, it's, uh, the, it's called the Denmark Strait Cataract, carries almost 2,000 times the amount of water of Niagara Falls at peak flow. 2,000 times more than Niagara at wow. peak flow. That's right. massive. Yes. So loads of facts uh, out there, but, you know, this book is beautifully done. 100 Dives of a Lifetime. All right, we have to go. So <laughs> we will. Uh, you can get me at 1-800-495-7617, 800-495-7617. You can also find us at conversationslive.net. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.